Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your DJ, your MC, the host on the East Coast. I'm Ben Montgomery. Joining me is my co-host from the left coast, Wayne Fugate. Hola, Ben Hamid. So for this episode, we have a special guest. He was a member of the band that we talked about on episode 120 when Tony Barber from the Buzzcocks joined us to talk about Crass's Feeding of the 5000 album. So please welcome to the podcast, Penny Rimboat. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. So um, did, did you get a chance to hear Tony talk about how influential Feeding of the 5000 was for him? Indeed I did, yes. Fantastic. Yeah, we, that, so I mentioned to Tony what when we were prepping for that episode that that was really the first time i'd really listened to crass i mean i'd heard of you all i'd heard maybe a few songs but i never really sat down to to take it all in Mm -hmm. i I guess i'll i'll kind of get to that in a few minutes um maybe we'll talk about your your popularity in the uk as opposed to um you know any notoriety that you may have had in the u.s and abroad did did you guys ever tour the U.S.? Uh, well, tour isn't quite the word for it. We uh, <laughs> played in New York for a week uh, in '78, I think it was. Okay. Um, yeah, we did about mm, half a dozen gigs um, with. Um, Mostly, well, not mostly, in, in no clubs. Um, CBGBs um, said they'd only um, have us if it was an isolated gig. In other words, we weren't allowed to play anywhere else in New York. Oh, if okay. We played. Yeah. And so we sort of know that's shite. So we, we played sort of social clubs and little theatres. Um yeah, and we did a week there. I mean, we were barely known then. Yeah. Um, either in Britain or in uh, certainly not in the states. Were you were you guys touring with anybody, or were you just kind of there? No, no, no. We just came over. G, who is the um, artist and designer for an awful lot of Crass's material, yeah. um, was living in New York at the time. And so she actually set up the tour and we went over and just played. Um, And we did a couple of loft gigs, that sort of thing. It's very good. Very small scale, but very intimate and very enjoyable. So that was it in 78? Yeah, I think it was. Did Did you guys do much touring elsewhere outside of the UK or was that pretty much it? Initially, we did... Um, about two uh, visits to Europe and we began to realize that we weren't really being understood. Um, In Britain, we were being seen as what we were, which was basically a political outfit out to make trouble politically. (laughs) Uh, In Europe, you know, we were taken as a, you know, another punk band, if you like, and they didn't get it because we were talking largely about the political situation in Britain. Yeah. Um, And so after two 
tours of Europe, Germany, Belgium, Holland, uh, we decided we weren't going to do that anymore. Um, we felt it was much more important to sort of be on the ground, if you like, where the issues that we were talking about were the ones that people were having to do with themselves. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, basically, we didn't regard it as touring as as much as as networking. You know, we travelled around Britain a lot. Um, and everywhere we went, we attempted to uh, assist in whatever way possible the development of um, community, uh, political, anarchist, um, dialogue, and facility, you know, I mean, so we never saw ourselves solely as a band. I mean, we, we, we had a mission, and the mission was to spread a particular sort of uh, um, political message yeah. or social message, really. And I mean, let's forget the political word, it's ugly. A uh, social message, you know, very much about doing your own thing, coming to know yourself realizing that you're the only person who can make the choose the choices in your own life and work on that build on that you know create kinship with people of similar mind so you can get out and do things like planting potatoes or making bread or yeah. doing fanzing whatever it was we were just trying to encourage people to you know choose a life of their own rather than the one they've been given, which, you know, is basically walking death. Yeah, for you guys, it wasn't just about the music. It was a, it was an ideology that came along with it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, so full disclosure, so I'm, I always tell people when I'm booking the guests that I'm, I'm the, the, the Americana, you know, alternative music, guy and and Wayne is more the guy who leans towards the the punk sensibilities. And so right, and so yeah. Wayne and I were talking the other night and and um you know one of the things that kind of came from our conversation was and and Wayne you can jump in here cuz you know you were the one who who were kind of comparing crass to the the American punks the the American punks were what what was what did you what did you mention that the American punks were more like? No, oh, they're just they're be against everything. They're just mad and and mostly probably at mommy and daddy. The one thing that I, I loved about Crass is um, that I think differs from all of I, I don't I can't even think of a punk band, especially at the time, that had their conviction. Like they they lived that and like he's even like I, I was great to hear what he was saying because I mean they were going around and like I think anarchy has been hijacked by bad actors the idea of not being governed uh or you know yeah that lack of authority because I think people would normal and most people the, the the a large majority of people would live you know cleaner lives better lives um but I, I just like their con their their conviction is unmatched. Um, but here in America, you would you would sometimes see their the name you know painted on a leather jacket with homemade spikes and a guy with you know fourteen inch Liberty Spike mohawk. You, uh, but that it was so much listening to the music over the last over these last few months. I listened to Penis Envy 
this last week. And I mean, gosh, I, the whole thing is, is it's not a feminist rant. It's, I mean, it's pointing out issues that are st still, still happening today. And, and, and society, some of the things that society has put on women, we still haven't gotten rid of all of them yet. Well, I don't think anything has changed. I mean, really, I think that, um, you know, our message, particularly about global capitalism, for example, I mean, we were way ahead on that front because, you know, the um, the idea of sort of corporate power, you know, people weren't realising what was happening, that capitalism was taking a stranglehold on the entire planet. Um, and even, you know, economically, initially, um, you know, we were still talking about, you know, like national economics, not global economics and et cetera, et cetera, you know. So on every front, you know, we were prescient, you know, we were, we, in a way, what we were talking about is more pertinent now than it was even then, you know. Yeah. The, the things that we were warning about have come to be, Um and that's why there's the current, you know, massive regrowth of interest. I mean, um, we're, we're far bigger now than we were, you know, back in the day when we were out working our asses off on the road. And that's because these issues haven't actually been looked at. They, they haven't been dealt with. You know, we might buy, but they haven't been dealt with, you know, and... and I mean, God, what's been happening in America, you know, over this last five years, four years, whatever it is, you know, rather demonstrates how little has anything's changed. Um, hopefully now a breath of fresh air and something might actually balance out again, where there's some sort of sense and decency. But And that was the same back then. I mean, we were very often on our own in our in the comments that we were making and in the things we were struggling for there's a funny imitator didn't actually mean what they were saying and didn't say what they mean you know it was a sort of um playground um largely there were other you know people who were genuinely working for real social change but you know they were few and far between to be honest yeah, what did you what did you guys think about some of the other bands that were coming out around that time that that did have a little bit of that message, but they didn't dive into it quite as much as as Crass's message was. You know, bands like Gang of Four or the or the Clash, for instance. I mean, what? Well, I mean, they were uh, politically naive for a start. You know, I think that they were sort of trying to find some value in sort of old-form socialism, you know, and uh, missing the mark. Um, you know, that form of socialism and communism has proven its inefficacy. It has no, it has nothing to offer, yeah. which isn't to say I'm completely averse to some of the ideals within communism of sort of like, um, shared responsibilities and shared um, earnings, et cetera, et cetera, that sort of element of it. But that actually never even entered the picture, really. It was just another power, you know, controlling the people. Um, and people don't need power controlling them. You know, they need a life in which they can find their own power and control, whatever it is, um, without limits. Um, so... 
really, there was very little going on in what was called the punk world, you know, that interested me. I mean, I was much more inclined to be listening to jazz where I was hearing people who were really, you know, pushing the limits, um, you know, driving, you know, through their statement of sort of total, I don't like the word individuality, but, you know, of, of, of total beingness, let's say that. Um, you know, that's why, you know, when, when like, you first got in touch and said, what records would you like? And I said, John Coltrane, because John Coltrane pushed every limit there is. And he didn't push it as John Coltrane. He, 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 he pushed it as, a, as an individual who cared and who loved life and who loved people and loved opportunity and loved potential, loved all the good things about being. Um, and at the same time realise that to achieve that, you had to work hard, 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 and you had to crack all these bubbles, crack all of these things that resist, the niceness or the order or the conformity, all the sort of crap has to be broken, broken down in one way or another. We have to sort of hurl ourselves into a sort of ocean of being, you know, to find out what the hell we are within that. And most people really just toe the line. You know, they fit into a nice, easy label. That's what I didn't like about the whole punk thing, really, is that it just became a sort of yeah. style, um, even a fashion. Um, another series of sort of glib platitudes, um, unfelt, unmeant, um, and with no real progressive um drive whatsoever either individually or socially or politically and there's no drive there and that's you know there were people who you know who had got something to say but um they were rare yeah was it was it that um you you mentioned that you were more drawn to 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 jazz artists because of they're pushing boundaries and and doing more exploration was that what kind of drew you to the punk scene considering that in the early stages of of punk before it became like you said a a lifestyle that they were kind of pushing those boundaries well i the first punk such that i um heard was probably patty smith i heard her on a okay. little independent radio show on um the, the in the uk and um i actually thought that she was a jazz singer i mean i don't know who the hell it was i just heard i think it was pissing in the river which I, you know remains one of my most favorite songs ever really it was um i could see in patty smith you know a sort of a bohemianism which she she has maintained i mean i haven't liked all she does etc cetera, etc cetera, but <laughs> i certainly see that spirit of adventure that, of yeah. searching of, of redefining um of becoming the person that you want to become uh and working for that you know hard and she's done it you know and i mean i i have huge respect for her in that respect i mean she stands out amongst all of the chatter um, that was around when first she appeared, you know, lots of people trying to play a style. And I think that she was a genuine, genuine article. Um, 
So, and as I say, when I first heard her, I thought, well, this is jazz. You know, I didn't, mm -hmm. I don't think I'd heard punk even mentioned. And now I went to some record store a few days later. I said, have you heard of someone, Patty Smith? Uh, I think she's a jazz singer. And, uh, you know, and then they bought out Horses, which was the album that was out then. And I took it home and loved it. And I remember actually in New York, I mean, I don't didn't get on with James Chance at all. You know, we sort of didn't see eye to eye at all. But I mean he was he was actually jazzing it away because he used to um used to play sax with his outfit and he was actually a pretty good sax player, I think. Um but I was more in America where I noticed there was sort of little well, say more in America, more in New York when I was there. Um, I noticed there was much more of a uh, element, sort of jazz element within what they were doing. Well, even Blondie went on to be doing straight jazz, didn't she, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. um, and maybe jazz, um, well, I mean, to me, jazz is, is such an, it, it, it has its American roots and is obviously going to affect so anyway, yeah, yeah. I had I had an opportunity to um, to uh, um, watch watch a few videos of you that are posted on on YouTube where you talk about the band and about you. You know, one of the things that you had mentioned how how when you were younger you were really drawn to the beat poets. You were inspired by them, mm. like mm. a lot of, like a lot of people from from your generation were inspired mm. by, by the beats. What what was it that inspired that that the beat writers inspired some people where they took it to the the the, the punk route, but yet other people were drawn more to like the the, the folk music route? Because um, I kind of felt like both of those, if you want to call it a movement, um, you know, both of those those genres of music were really inspired by by the beat poets. What what was it that inspired you? Their questioning nature and their refusal to um, to conform basically to any standard but their own, which sometimes was probably pretty mucky or deluded or whatever who cares you know you know it's a hard it's a hard journey you know journey without a map basically yeah um and they yeah. threw away the maps um and traveled their own journeys and some of them fucked up and some of them create created you know one wonderful work um and that's the route isn't it you don't know where you're going i mean that's you know to jump back to jazz you know people like um Coltrane, if he started out on a on a solo, he didn't know where he was going. He just was journeying without a map. And that's a way of life, you know, and it's a way of life that the Beats, if you like, promoted. And, um, you know, the results of, you know, in my terms, like Ferlin Getty, um, Kerouac, mm -hmm. Um, Ginsburg, oh, the, uh, Corso, they were all just pushing over the stones and seeing what was underneath. 
you know, climbing to the top of a mountain to see what was beyond, etc., etc., etc. And in every sense, you know, the, the mountain of the mind or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Never content to sort of sit where it's comfortable for t- too long. Um, just on a, there has to be something better. There has to be something better than this person I am, this thing I believe myself to be. You know, we're told what we're supposed to be. We're told we're white or we're told we're black. We're told we're Christian or we're told we're a Muslim. We're told all these things. which I mean, We're told what gender we're supposed to be or whatever it is. And it's up to us to make those decisions, not someone else. That's why I changed my name. I wasn't going to be someone else's. I'm myself. Yeah. You know, and when I was about 30, I changed my name to Penny because I like the name uh, and Rambo because I like the name. Uh, that's my name. I'm not the person. I'm not that person my parents think I was. And I don't buy into any of the things that they thought I might be. I bought into what I thought I might be. Yeah. And I've been in that position, if you like, all my life. Um, and to meet other people, it, albeit by books or by music or in the street, wherever it is, you meet someone and they're, they're saying, yeah, we're here, you know. It was, I mean, meeting Kerouac, you know, in a book. He was saying, "Yeah, I'm here," and I could go, "Yeah, I'm here too." Um, and it was sort of a real other world, a, a world of sort of caring and love and companionship. Um, even though I never even knew the guys. Right. I mean, my 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 most favourite poet of all time is Will Whitman, who was the guy who all the beeps really admired and loved. And I actually came to the beats through Walt Whitman. And Walt just never stopped screaming it. You know, he was always saying, I'm not a man, I'm not a woman. Or I see you in the street, I'm with you, I'm beside you. You know, he was he, he was the greatest prophet of possibility. And also, you know, I mean, he called it democracy. And I can understand democracy in the mouth of Walt Whitman. But Jesus Christ, if, 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 if America claims now to be politically democratic or Britain claims to be politically democratic, phew, that's a long, 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 long way from Walt Whitman's beautiful concept of democracy, which was peace fellowship and love i'm hoping that we'll get closer to those ideals again um maybe we've never really been at those ideals i say again i maybe we've never been there i don't think politically we ever can be and yeah as long as we're looking to that i mean we can get a better guy than the the bad guy but the better guy is only going to be better than the bad guy. He's not going to be as good as the good guy because no good guy is going to get into politics in that way. Yeah. They couldn't and they wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. For all the best will in the world, they couldn't and they wouldn't. And in any case, the sort of magnitude of sort of the corporate corporate capitalism and the military will pretty soon see to it that anything they might want to do isn't going to be possible. I mean, politics is over. It's finished. I mean, they can do it, and they'll go on doing it, but it's got nothing to do with us, and the sooner we realize it, the better we'll be for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been a while since I felt like any politicians have had my best interest in mind. 
<laughs> yeah. So, um, so, so getting back to the, the, the beat poets, did, were there other members of, of crass that were also into the, 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 the poets or, or is that what you kind of brought to the, the, the table for the band? Well, we were, I mean, all of crass, we weren't like an average band where, you know, a few musicians who might have known each other or didn't get together and make a band. We didn't do that. We, you know, I've, I've lived in an open house, which is a, what I set up in the late sixties. Um, and it's always been a place where anyone's welcome. Um, and if anyone's welcome, you meet huge range of people. And inevitably amongst those, there was a lot of sort of bohemian beat type characters who passed through, you know, with similar, if not the same sort of background as myself. Yeah. I was at art school with G, for example. Uh, two, I think two other people in the band had been through the art school trip, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So it was, in a, you know, like we attracted a particular type of person, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And we developed a particular type of life. So, um, and a lot of us, yeah, I mean, we all had a similar um, background, even though, you know, our ages were incredibly diverse. I mean, I think I was 33 or 34 even when we started Crass or when I started Crass with Steve, who at that time was 16 or 17, I think, you know, and he came from a really working class background. I came from a sort of upper middle class background. In in Britain, that's, you know, big deal. And uh, the class thing is so rampant here still. You sort of, you have a class and you belong there and God help you if you try moving out of it. Um, <laughs> and that was broken to a degree by people like the Beatles, actually. Um, they were the first people who really broke down some of the class barriers in this country, but they still exist. I mean, they're, they're still very dominant um, on, a, on almost on a par of the caste system in India where you, you have a place you belong. And people can tell that just by the way you speak, um, you know, what sort of accent you've got, what sort of words you use, etc. already define you within, when, within the social structure in Britain. Yeah, and Crass was very unusual in the sense that it, there was people from you know the working class, you know, who, who you know, are very underprivileged, disenfranchised very often. You know, they're that they are lit, literally the sort of slave class in the British economic system. You know, uh, so there was uh, there was a couple of people in the band who came from that background, came from East London, which is probably one of the poorest neighborhoods in britain or was it's now sort of been gentrified yeah um you know right up to people who'd been through the public school system which is the sort of you know like eaton and harrow sort of stuff um and the age difference was massive so the expectation levels were very very different if you've been through the public school like I I came through, um, then you know that you rule the world. That's what you're taught. You rule the world. And all um, British politicians came through that 
um, educational system. They're, they're trained to be leaders. Uh, you know, that's what you're going to be. You're going to be a leader. The difference is I ended up as a member of a band who was criticising that because if you've been a part of it, you're very able to criticise it. You know what's going on. I know what's going on within that particular class structure. In the same way as Steve knew what was going on in the street. So we sat, we had this amazing diversity of someone who really was streetwise, knew how to survive on nothing because their only way of getting stuff was going out and basically fighting for it. Yeah. On the other end, I, I had everything on a silver plate. Well, you put those two people together, then you've really got a force to be reckoned with um, because we, become, we could read the picture all the time because he knew the streets and I knew the avenues, if you see what I mean. Well, in in that note where you're saying, you know, you were brought up to to be a, a be told that you're a leader. Essentially, you were kind of a leader, just in a different way. You were leading a band that was going against most of those individuals. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, as I say, I, I mean, if if one knows the game i mean one of the major things at public schools generally is 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 the, the debating society so you're actually yeah. taught to debate taught to interrelate pick up a subject and then discuss it you know that's a big thing and you know it certainly was at the two schools i was at and um so the one thing that privilege is worth having for is to turn it on its face because if you have had privilege, you know how it works. So if you know how it works, you can reverse it. Yeah. And I sort of see the I was educated to if yeah, I'll go back educated to lead. Well, what I decided I was going to do with my leadership was to attack the very thing that had given me the ability to attack it, and that was class. I was able to 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 fire my broadside straight straight back the public schools and the universities and challenge them at their own game because I'd been educated within that game yeah. and that gave us a, a strange power which is why you know, there is I think in 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 crass there is this strange mixture of different sorts of savvy different sorts of knowing so it wasn't just singular, and one, most of the other bands that I knew, I knew a lot of them, it was generally people from the same class and the same background. Yeah. So they were quite, you know, their, their attack wasn't anywhere near as broad as what our attack was because of the incredibly different, we had a whole strata within the band and also, you know, the, the, the women in Crass weren't decorative like most women have been in most bands. I mean, I, I certainly think Patti Smith is a wonderful exception to that name, uh, to that rule. But generally speaking, women had to play a decorative part. As I have to say, largely, in, they did in jazz until not so very long ago. I mean, I think the picture is changing now, but... 
Um, and there's some really fine, wonderful um, female players who are sort of like, you know, breaking that 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 old thing that, that it was all right for the women to sing, but you didn't see them playing too often. Yeah. Um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so, I mean, the women were absolutely on a par with, with with what we were doing. And in fact, beyond the par in the sense that they were bringing, there were three women who were within the band, all of them coming from actually different angles, but all of them had been through, you know, the whole feminist movement mm -hmm. thing um of the early 70s so they had a you know very strong voice anyway and actually they had a very profound effect on the politics of the band overall you know so all the time there was all these sort of you know, in that sense you know it's a bit of a repeat but you know we, we just had a very broad front which sadly most bands don't have the opportunity to have right. because they're you know, they just started the band with the group of mates. Yeah, in in remembering listening to Feeding of the Five Thousand, so you guys attacked pretty much any of the status quo. There was, you know, there was government, there was, uh, you know, uh, capitalism. You know, the the, the song Secure Core, which I, we didn't know what Secure Core was. We had to look that up because mm. that was you know very UK. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was the was like the Falklands? Was that kind of a tipping point for you guys to to put together the 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 punk band, or was there other things? Oh no, it's way before the Falklands. Was it I before mean, that? Okay. Oh yeah, Falklands was around eighty two. Okay. Yeah, the band started in seventy seven. Uh, just Steve and myself, and we were just him and I initially, and we never thought we'd go anywhere further than the room we were making a load of noise in. <laughs> Uh, but, but other people, you know, as it was an open house, you know, people just turned up and they stayed or they didn't stay, whatever happened. It was a social house in that sense. Um, other people said, well, can I have a go or can I join in? And, you know, that's how it grew into being, a, you know, a regular band, if you like. Yeah. You mentioned the Falklands. Well, it was a tipping point in the sense that, you know, in 77, we started playing and, you know, we did that. Um, we came out to New York. We came back here. Things started really moving. We started getting audiences. Initially, we were playing to no one, really, um, playing in pubs and, you know, maybe 10 or 15 people in the audience because um, we weren't prepared to sort of, you know, like to try get in on the sort of, but it was called the King's Road scene, which is where all the sort of people like the Clash and the Pistols and they had their own little clubs and their own stomping ground, if you like. And we didn't want to be a part of that. We didn't. We could already see that these people were just <sighs> pantomime. It was becoming their own culture. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was sort of it. It, it was self-interested it was just you know another arm of the rock and roll industry really the music business yeah. um there might have been some sort of good thinking within it but you know it, it didn't operate you know it's all very well you know shouting out all this stuff but where what are you actually doing about it nothing you know it's the stages where 
you state your manifesto and the street is where you act it. Um, well, you know, there's an awful lot of stage and very little street when it came down to the, you know, those sort of so-called first punks. Um, and it had no real social significance. Um, and I and I don't think any of those other bands really t- took the the feminist message that you all did. Like I don't no, recall no- any. I don't recall any Pistols songs talking about any kind of feminist point of view or or the no. Clash. Yeah. Well, nor actually, in fairness, nor from the female uh, outfits. I mean, the Slits, you know, they, they yeah. weren't making any feminist statement. You know, I mean, we were head on with everything. It was very plain you know i mean i i think the slits had a feminist effect in the sense that they were a group of women doing something you know well that in itself Uh, uh, but i mean you could um uh, joan jett and that crew what did they call themselves i can't remember what the runaways runaways. yeah well i mean they had a feminist effect because they were you know a group of girls doing some stunningly good rock and roll well that had an effect but it didn't have the effect that someone like Patti Smith then has, who who's a poet and a thinker, you know, who's trying to push the boundaries. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, I don't know what I think beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, uh, you know, Wayne already mentioned Penis Envy. I, I listened to that this week as well. Um that that definitely felt like is it Eve? Yeah. So she she kind of took over for that particular record, right? Yeah. Uh, and that has a very scathing message, which like that was made in what eighty eighty one. Yeah, about eighty, I think. I don't remember. I think we still have a ways to go with with the with the whole gender gender class thing i mean we've got a way to go and a bit you know i mean it's um yeah. and i think the sort of uh current sort of gender politic thing is really barking up the wrong tree i mean yeah we've all got our own particular peccadillo you know, our own little choice or our own but so fucking what? What's important really is who we are together, how who we are as a body. I mean, I don't care what someone's sort of sexual leanings are. I mean, it, it it's so it's so coming down to sort of what's your sexual leaning? Well, sort of sexual leaning, what's your mind like? You know, it's so sort of body, 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 you know, and there's something in that body, and that's what you're that's what one loves, not, and uh, I think it's just missing the mark. All this stuff, you know, uh, redefining gender. Well, who needs to redefine it? Just do what you want to do. You know, why make a big deal out of all this stuff? Um, I mean, I thought I think certainly. I mean, when I was at art school, you if you went into a average working man's um, cafe. You'd probably get your face smashed because the the common view was that artists were all queer, gay, um, and that's what you'd get attacked as um, for no you know whether or not you were. 
or not. Um, there was that sort of, well, that was something to fight for, you know, that was something to be a part of, you know, like trying to change the whole sort of absurd um, attitude to homosexuality. I mean, it wasn't until 1967, I think it was, that the, uh, <coughs> the, the, the uh, homosexual relationships were decriminalized. Right. Um, I mean, Jesus Christ, that's so primitive, isn't it? It's unbelievable now. And it seems to me that this sort of new, there's arguments between, you know, people who call themselves this thing or that thing or that thing or this thing or that. Come on, guys. You know, we, we know. We tolerate. What are we? Why are we creating these divisions? We don't need to be doing that. And there's too much defining going on. I think it's it's the 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 tribe mentality we've we've been yes, tribes so. for for so long that mm. you know it's hard for us to 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 get out of those those uh whatever you want to call it groupings um well i think i think the key in that is that is that if you think you're something you're probably thinking wrong i mean we're nothing we're, <laughs> we we are what we are at this moment and we become what we are at that moment. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Maybe a great big black Muslim man will come into my shed and I'll fall in love with him. Maybe Marilyn Monroe will recreate and come into my shed and I'll fall in love with her. Maybe Jean-Paul Sartre will turn up and I'll become an existentialist for the afternoon. I mean, that's how we are. We're constantly changing, moving being the person, if I'm with a tree, I become a tree. If I'm in the sea, I become the sea. So I think that, that that's the angle I come from. I don't care two tuppences what someone is or what they claim to be, because I can see what they are. I don't need to be told that they're this or that or another. I don't care what they are. What I care is what we are together, and that's all I'm interested in. I'm not interested in who, you know, people's particular significant difference because there is actually no difference. The difference is all an idea we have of ourselves. How can you be a Christian? You can't be a Christian. You choose to act as a Christian. You're, we aren't Christians when we're born. Neither are we Penny Rambo. Neither are we black, white, or indifferent. We're just something. And it's all the stuff that people put on it that makes it into something. And it makes it a big problem for some people. Why are black people black people? They're just people. Why are white people white people? They're just people. What's the problem? And if we go, if in any way we buy into that problem by defining and, and, and separating, then we become part of the problem. Yeah. And we're creating the problem. And the only way is to uncreate it. I want to go back to um, penis envy real quick because I, I want to hear the story. One thing that I read was that you guys had um, got a white flexi disc in a teenage romance magazine loving so yeah 
tell me that story on how you guys um, got this out to to the masses, and um, I'm sure the readers of this loving magazine probably didn't really love your music. Oh no, absolutely not. I mean, what, the origin of <laughs> the origin of the track was that at the end of Penis Envy, uh, Eve was going to do. Um, do you know that Connie Francis song, "Liquid uh, Lipstick on Your Collar"? Yes. Okay. Well, Eve was going to do a version of that, so we got. Um, this keyboard player, you know, I did a lot of work with after that, that a guy called Paul Ellis, fantastic. He used to play with hot chocolate, actually. And um, oh, okay, cool. He was a great, great player. He could be a great jazz player as well, as a matter of fact. Anyway, we got him to do this fantastic arrangement for lipstick on your collar. The only difference was that Eve's version was actually going to be lipstick on your penis. Told a tale on you. <laughs> and we started recording it, and Eve just could not stop laughing. I mean, she'd get to the you know the penis bit and just crack up. And we tried and tried, and we just actually weren't getting anywhere. And uh, but just because she was just, I mean, tear, tears rolling down her face from just laughing so much. <laughs> And she sort of lost her voice, basically, trying her best to get get this done. And as we were doing it, we started seeing it. It was very funny, but we also realised that actually it was probably a pretty stupid thing to do because people like, I don't know who Connie Francis was with, but she had been with Warner Brothers or one of the really big labels. And they'd have come down like a ton of bricks on us, you know, for doing that, mucking about with their precious song, particularly in that content. Um, so we had a bit of a rethink, and um, I had to, I, I just had this idea, well, why don't we just do a crap love song based around this fantastic arrangement that Paul had done for Lipstick on Your Collar? Um, and so... I asked um, Phil, who is the lead guitarist in the band, and Joy, who did occasional vocals um, supporting Eve, uh, if they'd go off and write a shit bad love song um, so we could do that at the end of Penis Envy. So they disappeared. And we got on with something else. And they came back about an hour later with with the um, lyric that you know uh, that, that about about love, oh, you know, of sort of commercial love. You know, you're not allowed to look at any other man because I love you and all this sort of nonsense. And um, as uh, uh, Eve by now is completely incapable of doing any recording, you know, her voice had totally gone just because she'd been laughing so much. So Joy took over on the vocal and we did the song. And as we were doing it, you know, the idea of why don't we try this on some um, one of those um, teeny, teeny kids 
love magazines, which are crap. You know, they're te- they're they're sort of telling particularly young girls and often lonely young girls all this sort of lie about what love is and marriage and all the sort of nonsense that kids are fed about human relationships. And we thought, well, why don't we try it out? And um, so we did. We we uh, we got in touch with all these different. Uh, magazines of which there's probably about a dozen of these sort of nonsense editions going out. I don't know where they still do them, maybe. Um, and Loving was picked up on it, they absolutely adored it. Uh, we heard, um, I don't think Joy changed her name, I think she remained Joy DeViva. But we said that it, uh, the recording was done by Creative Recording and Sound Services. So we never, obviously, never told. <laughs> so it appeared, you know, crea- uh, uh, creating recording and sound services. Joy de Vivre presents our wedding, and they did it as a sort of free goodie in their brides-to-be issue. Um, so what a setting, you know, fantastic. So we, uh, we had it, well, I think they had it pressed on white vinyl, why we suggested it did a sort of crap thing, you know, like a, a, a wedded couple in silver on the front of the of the um, pressing. And out it went, you know. And then Fleet Street, which is the sort of was where all the newspapers and magazines used to operate from. It's just one street. It's not like that anymore. But at that time, all of the sort of dailies went out from one particular street and London, where there was a lot of printing presses and journos around, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And we tipped off. We knew someone who worked. I can't remember, even remember what newspaper. It was. I think it was Daily Mail or something like that. And uh, we tipped them off. So they then broke the story that actually Loving had been tricked by um, this outfit, Crass. And, it, you know, it hit all the head, sort of headlines because the the newspapers love dissing each other. I mean, any little story they've got which puts down another uh, edition, another production, they go for. So, you know, they so there was all this sort of like, wow, what a nonsense. How could they possibly have fallen for it and all this sort of nonsense? Yes, but it was the basic point we were trying to make was that the magazines like Loving were really exploiting, you know, human loneliness and human isolation by, you know, filling them in with bloody nonsense that, you know, dreams of how it could be in front of the fire with your lover and a dog and a squirrel or whatever you do if you're doing that sort of nonsense. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was a sort of strong feminist message. Um because obviously it 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 bought up in all the press reviews and yeah the, the, I think there's quite a little bit on radio maybe about it I don't know but you know it brought out the question of are you know are people like loving actually serving any valuable service or are they just exploiting which you know we felt they were and um, and I think we sort of quite damaged uh, loving's reputation which was a sort of minor achievement i suppose <laughs> that whole story is um so punk <laughs> yeah <laughs> Don't be in trouble, tell me 
Quite apart from, you know, sort of street activism, you know, the stage stuff, obviously, street activism, general social piddling around, you know, and, and getting out in you know, activism itself, getting out on the streets on sort of whatever, protests and that sort of stuff. Yeah. We were always looking for using the power we had or the position we had, you know, to do things like loving. Um, you're always looking for some trick we could play and, and coming up with a few good ones. So it was all part of it. I mean, we, we were very, again, to go back on that word broad, you know, we weren't, you know, we'd much prefer to play a game like what we did with Loving Magazine because it hit, hit the target straight off. You know, that was more important to us than the next single or making another album. What We were always looking for something we could pull off. goes back to what you were saying about um, the, it wasn't about the music, it was about the ideology. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. All right, Wayne, any other uh, questions for Penny about Crass before we talk about the record that he chose? Uh, no, I can say I, um, I I can't think of anything. So so Penny, what what album did you pick to to talk about for this episode? I chose John Coltrane, and um, I don't actually remember which one I chose, but which Interstellar one Space. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, I played with choosing Love Supreme, but ugh, Interstellar really is it, I think. Um, it's utterly uncompromising, uh, profoundly beautiful. Um, it says everything that can be said. Um it's the blues like no blues have ever been before or since. It expresses everything that blues meant about, and I, when I use the word divine, I'm not using it in a Christian sense. I'm using it in, in, in the sense of perfection. Um, but there's a sort of expression of divinity, which, you know, supersedes any idea of difference any idea you know that a total humanity a statement you know rather like the blues did i mean blues was a sort of way of expressing joy and proud pride you know within the most hideous conditions which is from where from whence blues developed but even to express joy a time of such horrific suffering. And I think that in a way, you know, 
um, Coltrane was part of that tradition. You know, he knew what he was socially. He knew where he was socially. When we played in New York, we played with a um, black reggae band. I think they were called the Eagles. I can't, I can't remember their name. But anyway, they weren't allowed in through the front door. That was in 78. Of I think it was a Polish working man's club or something we were playing at. They had to go around the back door. Wow. That was 78. Um, and what I love about Coltrane, he didn't see any doors. He just walked through. There was no doors of mind. There was no doors of body. There was There was just this pure, unconditional demand for life. I mean, I've often described Coltrane as a scream for life. And a scream doesn't need to be violent and it doesn't need to express pain. It, it can express utter, complete, exquisite joy. And that's what I get from Coltrane. It, 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 there's the, the pain and the joy. Um, there's the beauty and the horror. And this is what we are, you know. We can hold ourselves in one position, but we're going to be walking death if we do that. We are all those things. Yeah. You know, we are rage and we are laughter. Um, and we can't be isolated in that. Yeah, and I think this album has a lot of that. Yes. I, yeah. I mean, unrelentingly so. I mean, you don't know ever where it's, where it's going to go next. Um, and it grabs you by the balls or by the tits or whatever, but, I mean, it grabs you hard and you can't get away. You can't get away from that. It, you can't get away with it by imagining you can understand it. It's like life. You can't imagine it, actually, which is why we pay these pathetic little roles with it oh i'm a this or i'm a that or no i'm not that i'm this etc etc sort of self-argument all the time yes sorry all oh, right okay look. um and so that was g coming to tell me it was eight because i said we would be finishing at eight but anyway um uh and i think that really his more than any other music that I know, and particularly in that particular album, he's just saying be. Not conditionally, he's just saying be. This is the moment, be it. He's not actually giving you any choice. There's no way out. So let me throw out a couple of the, the, the bio info on the record. So this was one of his last records that he recorded this was recorded in 1967 february of 1967 yeah and he of course pa passed away in 67 this didn't yeah. get released until 74 mm. um it's only john coltrane and drummer rashid ali yeah that's it that, that so yes. those are those are the those are the two individuals who are playing on this so very in improvisational which i think um penny i think you you've kind of expressed that that's uh 
that's kind of right up your alley is just improv and see where things take you. And that's, yeah. and that's definitely this album. Um, one thing that I, 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 uh, read was that when Ali arrived to the studio, he then saw that there were no other, no other musicians there. And so yeah. he, he related to his friend. Um, he said, so ain't nobody coming. <laughs> and Coltrane arrived. Um, and then he, uh, he then said the same thing to Coltrane and Coltrane was like, Nope, it's just you and me. Yeah. And, and he said, well, what are we playing? Is it fast? Is it slow? And Coltrane's response was, whatever you want it to be. Come on, I'm going to ring some bells, and then you can do an eight-bar intro. Yeah, yeah. And then it was off to the races. Yeah. And so what you hear, from what I gather, was this is all done in one take. So you've got you've got four songs, Mars which is almost 11 minutes long, Venus, which is eight and a half, Jupiter, five and a half, and then Saturn, which is almost 12 minutes long. Um, you know, Wayne and I were kind of joking because when we usually do these episodes, we talk about a full album and then we do scoring and then we figure out what our top five songs on the album are. Yeah. Well, this doesn't even have five songs for us to come up with a top five. So, yeah. so, so is, is there a particular track that you like the most out of all of these? And, and if so, why? What do I like most about life? The thing I enjoy most or like most about life is what I'm doing. Otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. Um, yeah. and that's constant. Uh, that's day to day, moment for moment, second by second millisecond by millisecond why am i doing it because i'm doing it um one doesn't need to add to that i mean we even in crass we actually uh, enter, we went into the studio to do yes sir i will and the band was saying to me well what are we going to do and i said we're just going to do it and we did it and that was recorded in 45 minutes and that was it on one take uh, um no one had rehearsed we didn't rehearse it or anything we just did it and that's how I always work now. But I mean that, and I had, and I had always worked prior to Crass, and it was only with Crass that I ever did anything which could vaguely be described as a song. I was always trying to fuck the mark. I'm sorry, mess it up. <laughs> um, the, um, the you can't have a favourite within something which is by nature favourite, and if it isn't, why are you there? So and and I once heard a Japanese flautist, flute player, um, describing the meaning of Japanese flute playing, and he would play one note, and then there'd be silence. And then play another note, and then there'd be silence. And so you've got maybe twenty notes or something. He then explained that each note was unique in itself and had got nothing to do with the next note. The next note is the next note. It isn't the next note in the terms of Western thinking. In other words, to be filled in and or put together. Each thing was an individual expression of, of the divine, of the perfect. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. A bit like Japanese gardening, where each stone is a self-statement. You, know, you can you can create the relationships, but each one of them is placed there because it of its stoneness. Um, and I think that that's the sort of that's the sort of depth of of cold train. He had the confidence actually to move beyond uh, Love Supreme, which in sort of conventional jazz terms is probably one of the most brilliant jazz albums ever made. It's my favorite. But he moved on from that into so much a deeper, whereas a Love Supreme was like a story about Love Supreme. Interstellar is Love Supreme. <laughs> he didn't need any more to make up a tune, make up a story, because he was the tune and he was the story. And it wasn't even him. If John Coltrane had tried to play like John Coltrane, he wouldn't have played John Coltrane. He couldn't have done. He didn't do anything because he wasn't even there. That's the beauty of his music. He's not there. Yeah. We're there. You know, and it's this sort of like getting out of this framework of what am I in this or how can I this or how can I that, which is all a, a piece of delusion. Things are happening because they're happening and they're happening as a sort of massive symbiotic whole. You know, we're not alone. We can't be alone. So, so is this what Coltrane is trying to convey, considering that each of the songs... I don't think he's trying to convey anything at all. He is simply conveying it. Yeah. And that's the... That's the I mean, I think it's the same with the a lot of the greatest beat writing. It wasn't trying to do anything at all. It was doing it. Yeah. Ooh, I'm going to try and write an avant-garde poem. No, that wasn't what they were trying to do. They were just living it. And some of it was poetry. Some of it was getting pissed. Some of it was climbing up mountains. Some of it was making love. And there wasn't any difference between any of them. This is it. This is it. This is the moment. Be in the How can I be everything? Not. It's, it's a matter of being everything in every moment rather than something in some moments. You know, and people are so inclined towards something in some moment. So, oh, yeah, it was so great yesterday. And, I, you know, I played a great gig and blah, 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 blah. What have you done since? Oh, well, you know, I had to do the uh, you know, you know, drop of tempo. Why drop the tempo? You know, everything's a gig. This is a gig. You know, when I stop doing this, I'll do another gig. You know, I'll do a gig over there with G who just came and told me supper's ready. So that's another gig. But no different. And no, not, it's, one is no more important than the other either. It can't be. Yeah. Well, we won't, we won't keep you from supper. So this, <laughs> this has been great. Thank you very much for your time. Well, I've enjoyed it. And uh, I hope you, um, I hope you've gotten what you wanted. Uh, um, and I, and, uh, yeah, it's great. We're, nice to have met you. We're, we're doing, we're doing exactly what, what you said is, is, you know what, we're, we're just creating this and seeing where, 
you know, our, our questions go and where the answers go and having this great dialogue. And, you know, I, I, I've really enjoyed this. This is, uh, Oh yeah. Did, did we lose him? I think he went to supper. That's awesome. I, uh, prob guy, I'm playing things out. You, you used, I, I meticulously organized my baseball cards as a kid. So I, it's hard for me to wrap my head around just playing or even just being like Penny was talking about, but that idea of, you know, anarchy being lacking authority to not being governed. And that's, I mean, and in music, you, there, there is that there are rules. Only these notes can be played to, you know, in a, in this, you know, this note can only come after these, these notes and these, these string of notes can be played together, but only after these, are. And so to to just break out of that and just say I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play by those rules. I'm going to play whatever I want. And there were times where I wanted to stop the track. And then there were times where I found myself lost in it. And even though when I but when I would come to, then it would all sound like quickly played saxophone notes that I, I couldn't comprehend or or couldn't even really begin to even understand. But when you'd lose that consciousness and then it almost, you could, then you could not necessarily, like I say, I, like Penny said, when I wasn't trying to understand it, I, I, I just heard it. Um, that didn't happen very often. I'm not going to lie. And my favorite song was definitely Jupiter at five and a half minutes. And I don't think that's an accident, but there were, he, he, there is something to what he was saying. I was as I was listening to him. It, it uh, that that thought popped into my mind when I stopped trying to figure out what he was doing or understand it, or and I just was listening to it. I would kind of fade off, and it would play, and I and before you know it, twelve you know twelve minutes of improv and I, improvisational saxophone and drum jazz just just was. 